Well, good morning, everybody. I'm glad to see you, and uh, if you're streaming along with us, I know we're a little bit different time than we usually are on Sunday mornings. We had a little glitch at the first service, but if nothing else, it allows you to see different backs of heads, right, on the, on the stream. So um, uh, if you got a Bible, I'd love for you to, first thing we do together is let's open up God's Word to Romans uh, chapter 8. Uh, that's where our fighter verse passage is for this week. As a church family, uh, week in and week out, we have a particular passage of Scripture that we use for what's called our fighter verse. It's the fight, the good fight of faith. And we've gone from uh, Psalm 121, memorize that together, and now we're going to be in Romans 8, 28 to the end of the chapter. I take that to mean that God must know that in these days we need to know something about persevering endurance. And so uh, Romans 8, verse 28 We'll read together in just a moment, Uh, and then I just always want to give an encouragement. Um, The only way to know God is to know Him through His Word. That's because that's how God has chosen to reveal Himself to us, amen? Uh, And so this is not, uh, when we talk about fighter verses, it's not, hey, just memorize a verse so that you can regurgitate it. You need to know this for life. I mean, just looking around the room of those who are present here, life's hard. And we need to know who God is all times, but especially when things don't seem like they make sense or when life doesn't seem like it itself is good. Before I jump all into that, I do have an announcement to make. Um, And uh, the most frequent question that I have gotten from the church family for the past year or so is this question, what can we do to help? And I just want to tell you how thankful I am that that's the most frequent question because there have been a lot of questions having there but without exaggeration by far the most frequent question I've received is how can I help and so the next couple of Sundays I am going to give you a few specific ways that you can help beginning with this ministry I want to put a couple of pictures up on the screen and start with this one this is our ramp ministry and so anytime we talk about opportunities to serve I think a really helpful way to think about it is who are you serving when you work this way So here's one picture of the team working on a ramp, and here's another. So obviously, this ministry is designed to help those who have a hard time getting out of the house to go get groceries, to make the doctor's appointment, and so on and so forth. So this group does more than any group I know within the church family of really practically helping people who really need help. In fact, this group has done such an awesome job in years gone by that the demand is really high right now for more ramps to be built. So that's where you come in. We could really use your help to build these uh, ramps. So if you're interested in helping out, uh, you can, of course, talk to me. And then Phil Rowe is a man here in the church who's always helping other people. uh, And this is one of the many ways he does that. And you can talk to him as as well. We just need some more help. Uh, The the demand is uh, overextended the supply of workers. And so if, you, if you're interested in that, I'd love to just get you started in that uh, direction. So let's go back here to Romans chapter 8 and learn about where our help comes from. Our help comes from the Lord and in spe- specifically this way, something you can believe for your life, Romans eight twenty eight. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we didn't memorize this verse, but this is why it's helpful to memorize long passages of Scripture, not just individual verses, because you can take a verse out of context. So let's go on and read verse 29. For those, he, for those he foreknew, he also predestined 
to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So I want to put those two things together. God works all things together for those who are called according to his purpose. His purpose for your life is clearly stated in verse 29. God wants to conform you to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus. What's God's will for your life? To make you like Jesus. What does he do to bring that about? He works all things together for that ultimate purpose. So here's what you can know. There's not one single solitary aspect of your life right now that is not within God's scope to use to make you more like Jesus. The hard things, the suffering, the disappointments, the expectations you thought were good, it was going to happen this way, it happened that way. God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I want you to listen to, I want to read a, a good portion of an article that I read this week. It's by a Christian author named Tim Challies. Some of you may know him. Uh, I think it's well worth finding him online and reading his articles. And when I read this, it was so in line with what I believe the heart of Romans 8, 28 and 29 is that I wanted to read it to, to you. It may be helped in knowing that recently, in the last couple of months, uh, Tim Chalice endured the very unexpected uh, death of his college-age son. And so he writes this, Have you ever bitten into a green tomato or sunk your teeth into a fall apple during the heat of summer or to a summer strawberry during the cool of spring? Have you ever listened to a choir's first rehearsal, read a book's first draft, gazed at an artist's initial sketches, Have you ever tasted a chef's half-baked dish, watch a choreographer's first dance, listen to a song's initial lyrics? If you've eaten that apple or read that draft or listened to that song, you know the unpleasantness of enduring what is merely underway of what remains a work in progress. If your tongue uh, was curdled by that sour strawberry, or if your ears been pierced by those unformed harmonies, If your eyes have been offended by the missed cues and faltering steps, you know the struggle to appreciate work that is partial, that is unfinished, that remains in formative stages. I think this is really wise. Obviously, that's why I'm sharing it with you as he writes. We have no right to pass judgment on work that has not yet been completed. We should not condemn in August an apple that is meant to ripen on the tree in October. It will become sweet in its time if only we are patient. We do not write off as inharmonious the melody for which the composer has not yet written the final notes. The whole will be beautiful if only we wait for him to finish. He writes, we are sometimes too quick to draw conclusions about unfinished work, too hasty to form judgments about what's just gotten underway. The truth is we have no right to judge the skill of an artist before he has hung his picture in the gallery, no right to assess the work of the chef before he sets the dish on the table, no right to judge the flavor of the produce until the farmer has declared it's ripe. And in much the same way, surely it is only right to reserve judgment on God's providences until he has fully worked them out, until he has not shown just their beginning, but their end. Two more paragraphs. So helpful. Wisdom compels us to wait. 
to admit that we ourselves do not wish to be judged for what we have merely begun, for what we have envisioned in our minds but not yet fully formed with our hands. Wisdom reminds us that there is an artist who is fashioning a work that, when complete, will be wondrously beautiful. That there is a farmer who knows exactly when the fruit will be ripened and delightfully sweet. Wisdom gently whispers, there is an author telling a story whose end will be wonderful as its beginning, whose final chapter will be as breathtaking as its first. He concludes this way, today I see only partially. I see only bits, I see only beginnings of God's work of providence in the death of my precious son, but I'm convinced the day will come when I will see completely, I will see the whole, I will see the end. Until the time God unveils his work in its completion, I must wait with faith. I will wait with faith, with full confidence that his masterpiece will declare his glory, that it will showcase his goodness, and that it will be worthy of my most heartfelt praise. Now, that's hard to do. That's why we pray, right? So I'm going to invite you to stand, and we're going to pray together, and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to do um, His will among us today, what God the Father wants to see accomplished among us. Let's ask Him to do that. Father, I would humbly confess that I believe Romans 8, 28, and help my unbelief. That you do work all things together for good. But there are so many things that in the moment don't seem good. And it is so hard to see the end. Therefore, we will remember Christ and him crucified. We will remember a king who has declared, it is finished. With all that is so hard to see and understand, we will hold fast to what is clearly seen, that you have demonstrated your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Father, give us grace to seek you with humility and to seek you in Jesus' name. And I pray that everything that we do in the rest of today's service is spirit-led, edifies us, encourages us, bring correction where we need that, Give us grace to be teachable as we exalt the Lord Jesus together, in whose name we pray. Amen.
Let's continue to worship the Lord together with the reading of Scripture. And as we continue our study verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark, we have come to Mark chapter 14. And I think a really helpful way for you to study and know Mark 14, 1 through 11 is to understand that there's clearly a contrast between two people that we're meant to pay much attention to uh, in Mark 14, 1 through 11. One, a betrayer of Jesus, and one who is an extravagant worshiper of Jesus. One who believes that, yes, Jesus has the name above all names, contrasted with one who says Jesus has a significant name, but I'm not so sure he has the name above all names. So let's begin in verse number 1 of Mark chapter 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. They scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Truly, I say, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray together. Father, my prayer is that the main point in your heart and mind for us to understand when this scripture we've just read was inspired of the Holy Spirit to be recorded is the focus of our time. Guard us from error. Guard us from the opinion of people so that we can hear your word clearly. We pray that we're teachable and give us grace to understand this passage in the way you want us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, of course, you may be seated uh, I want to go on and give you the main point of this morning's sermon. And the title of the sermon is Breaking Down the Betrayal of Jesus. And remember, anytime we study God's Word, we want to learn what it has to tell us about who God is, but we also want to learn what it has to say about who we are. We need truth from outside of us to inform us of who we really are. Truth doesn't originate with us. It's one of the lies of our age. It originates with the Lord as revealed in His Word. So here's the main point of this morning's sermon. Following Jesus on the basis of anything other than loving Him supremely will end in betrayal. Or to put it another way, if you love something more than Jesus, betrayal of Jesus is inevitable. Or to put it one other way, you'll never betray what you love the most. That might be the easiest way for us to remember the main point. You will never betray what you love the most. Judas betrays Jesus 
Therefore, he loves something more than Jesus. And we're going to talk about what that is. But we want to break down the betrayal of of Jesus. It's helpful to know that uh, more important than how you start as a follower or a supposed follower of Jesus, how you start is how you finish. And so let's break down his betrayal at the hands of Judas. By beginning with this point, Jesus is betrayed by, first observation, by his own disciple. Now, a little bit of the shock might have come off the betrayal of Jesus by Judas because most of us in the room already know ahead of time that Judas is the one who betrays Jesus. But in order to maybe feel a little bit of the shock of it, we have to go back to recall that Jesus is betrayed by his own disciple. Now, Jesus, as we've seen clearly through our study in Mark's gospel, he has plenty of overt, public, loud, confrontational enemies. We read about some of them right here, right? Verse 1, it was now two days before the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. They don't want to hurt him. They don't want to rough him up. They want him gone. They want him finished. They want to kill him. So Jesus has no shortage of, of enemies. But Judas was not among them. He was from among the 12 disciples of Jesus. And now their desire, of course, is the, the overt enemies, the chief priests and scribes, to arrest him by stealth. Right? We've been studying as Jesus is taught publicly in the temple. And he'll say this later on when they do come to arrest him. You could have done this. I stood in the temple and and taught day after day, and now you come in the darkness and cover of night. Yet they wanted to arrest him by stealth, and Judas is the one who allows them to do that. He's the one who will be able to identify Jesus for them in secret with, as we know, a kiss on the cheek. But we should also know that the betrayal of Jesus does not come as a surprise to Jesus As far back as the feeding of the 5,000, he had said very clearly to the disciples, when many had forsaken him, after the feeding of the 5,000, they sought to make him king by force. Clearly from the gospel, a lot of people stopped following Jesus because he didn't turn out to be the king in the manner that they thought he should be. We tracking together? When he didn't become the Messiah that they wanted him to be, the the tragedy is Jesus had come to offer them so much more, and this is also true of us, by the way. He's come to offer us so much more than what we often want for ourselves. And as far back as that moment, he had looked at the disciples and had said to them, one of you is a devil. So Jesus knew all along that his betrayal would come at the hands of one of his disciples. So let's think, pause for just a moment and think about all that is true of Judas Judas saw Jesus. He heard Jesus teach. Judas had sacrificed for Jesus. Judas witnessed Jesus' miracles. Judas was in the boat when Jesus calmed the storm. Judas saw the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Judas was there passing out baskets full of bread that seemingly had no end until all were fed. He had taught in the name of Jesus. He'd cast out demons in the name of Jesus. In some measure, he'd been persecuted as a follower of Jesus. He'd given much of his own time in the ministry. He was around many followers of Jesus. And all along, through all those months, gave no indication that he wasn't submitted to Jesus. So this is really important application for us. You can spend a lot of time, years of time, around the things of God without having a heart that's actually submitted to to God. To be a little more specific, you can have positions of leadership in the so-called ministry of Jesus without having a heart that is submitted to Jesus. 
from that time to this time, there are people who have platforms of seemingly healthy ministry that's ultimately revealed that their hearts were not submitted to Jesus. And it can be devastating when that happens. J.C. Ryle wrote it this way, If ever there was a man who at one time looked like a true disciple of Christ, that man was Judas. He's chosen by the Lord Jesus himself to be an apostle, privileged to be a companion of the Messiah, an eyewitness of his mighty works, an associate of Peter, James, and John, sent forth to preach the kingdom of God and to work miracles in Jesus' name. He was regarded by all 11 apostles as one of them themselves. He was so like his fellow disciples that they did not suspect him of being a traitor. And yet this very man turns out at last a false-hearted child of the devil, departs entirely from the faith, assists our Lord's deadliest enemies, and leaves the world with a worse reputation than anyone since the days of Cain. So Jesus is betrayed by his own disciple. And, and next, as we've been talking about, Jesus is betrayed by a man who gave every appearance, every appearance, it's an important word, right? Every appearance of being a devoted follower of Jesus. For most all of Jesus' public ministry, remember we're right here at the last week of Jesus' ministry, there were no indicators that Judas was not the exact same in his devotion as the other disciples, right? There had never been a moment as Jesus was teaching that Judas had rolled his eyes. There had never been a moment when Judas is sent out that he has anything but but indication that he's a faithful follower of Christ. That must mean, and this is so important, that must mean the most important aspects of your relationship with God are beneath the surface. One of the most helpful verses in all the Old Testament comes up when David is anointed as king. And you remember the Lord said to Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Some people have a passing or seasonal interest in the things of God. Some people even have an intense interest in being a follower of Jesus. But Jesus himself taught us that the kingdom of God is like a man who goes and casts seed on the ground, right? And some falls on shallow ground, and some falls on rocky ground, and some falls on thorny ground, and some falls on good soil. Now, there's a certain soil that very quickly, it looks like a healthy plant blooms, right? But that's shallow soil that has no root. And as Jesus said, when the sun comes out, and persecution comes, or in the phrase of Jesus, the cares of the world, it immediately Well, it fades away as quickly as it sprung up, right? Now, that is not a picture from Jesus' teaching of someone who lost their salvation. That's a picture of someone who appeared converted but never genuinely was. Practically speaking, one of the things this means for us to be a healthy church is that we must place greater emphasis on the long road of enduring obedience than on the one moment of initial enthusiasm. Does that make sense? In other words, we don't simply point back to a day years gone by when you were saved. We point to today and ask, are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? I have a birthday, May the 8th, 1979, which is getting further and further from the 
current day, but I'm also alive right now. And I've matured much since that day. So yes, I had life on that day, but you know that I was born on that day because I'm standing here on this day. Does that make sense, I hope? Same is true spiritually. You must be born again. But if you've been born again, you grow in maturity. So we don't simply ask, what day were you converted? Not if we're going to be a healthy church. We have to understand, we have to love each other enough to ask about right now. Are you abiding in Christ right now? This guards us from unhealthy emphasis on the appearance of things. Let's keep digging a little bit from this passage. This is helpful, I think, is to know that Jesus is betrayed by a man who saw extravagant worship as wasteful. Now, our primary passage is here in Mark's gospel. Let's turn over here to the gospel of John. So if you're in Mark, the next book over in the New Testament is Luke, and the one after that is John. And John gives us uh, a little bit of insight into this very same event, but he gives a little bit more detail. What you'd be helped to know is, um, can you do two things at once? Hold your spot there in Mark 14 while you're turning to John 12. Mark 14, 3 through 9 is what we'd call a flashback from Mark 14, 1 and 2. In other words, have you ever been watching a television show and they're in the moment and the plot is progressing and then in order to inform what's going on in the moment, they have a flashback to something that happened previously. That's what's happened in Mark 14. We're talking about Judas, it's a betrayal of Jesus, but Mark goes back to a moment when it feels like Judas, in his heart, he kind of stepped over the line that he was going to betray Jesus. And it was this moment, John chapter 12, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Can we take a time out for just a moment and just think about this fact? Jesus is at dinner at Simon the leper's house, the implication being that he had healed this man from leprosy, and Lazarus is one of the people there. That's a picture of heaven, if there ever was one. Healed people in heaven, enjoying the presence of Jesus. The difference is no betrayers will be there, right? Only the redeemed. But those who have been healed by Jesus are the quickest to extend hospitality to others. So there at this house, what a dinner it must have been. Mary, therefore, took a pound, verse 3. So here's where we learn this is Mary, Lazarus's sister. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his hair with, I'm sorry, wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, notice who in particular spearheads the criticism. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Oh, the betrayers can sound so pious. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you will not always have me. So we learn some things from John's account, don't we? It's Mary. What do we know about Mary? Remember when Jesus came and taught at Martha's house, one person sat at his feet, and as the Bible says, listening to what he said. And Martha was distracted with much serving, and she finally comes in the room and says, won't you tell Mary to help me? And Jesus lovingly says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the greater portion. It will not be taken from her. And here is a display of what she understood. 
She's the only one so far that really understands Jesus is about to die. Why? She's the only one on some level who really listened to what he had to say, right? So she's anointing him for burial. She knows it won't be long. And Judas is annoyed by her extravagant worship. Just know in your life, if you seek to give the Lord Jesus extravagant, sacrificial, costly service, some of your harshest critics will be from the religious places. You just have to know that. It ought not be that way, but it will be that way. Judas, why is he angry? Can, can we pause for a moment and take this into consideration? He's a man, next, drawn to money and power. That's what John revealed to us. Can, can we appreciate how frustrating it must be to love money and be the treasurer of the Jesus ministry, right? I mean, how frustrating that must have been for Judas. For example, a rich young ruler comes up to Jesus one day and gives every indication, again, talking about appearances, what must I do to inherit the kingdom? And to be Judas, a lover of money in control of the treasury, and say, whoa, now this is someone who can take this few coins that I've got in the bag right now, and he can fill it to the brim until it overflows. In fact, you can almost hear Judas doing the calculating in his mind. I'm going to have to get a bigger money bag with this guy as our follower. And Jesus tells him, here's what you lack. Sell everything you have. And he doesn't say, put it in our treasury. He says what? Give it to the poor. You want to talk about a religious hypocrite? Judas then takes that command and applies it to Matthew 14 scenario because he wants to sound pious and spiritual. I heard Jesus say that. I'm going to say that, although I don't really mean it, right? Or to be Zacchaeus and be ready to, in generosity, repay all the people that you've uh, ripped off, right? And for Jesus, again, a wealthy person, and he doesn't say, give me all the money. Judas must have been just clenching his teeth all the time. As Jesus goes around saying, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. I don't know where I'm going to sleep tonight. And over time, Judas demonstrates that he loves money more than he loves Jesus. That's why 30 pieces of silver must have been so disappointing. But, but Judas, as a lover of money, isn't very uh, strategic. By the time they say, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver, he's already stepped over the line and revealed to them he's willing to betray And so he doesn't get much in the way of funds at all. Paul Tripp's book, uh, I think it's his most recent book, is A Journey to the Cross. It's a 40-day devotional leading up to Easter, and I've been reading it. We're we're less than 40 days before Easter. I don't know if you knew that or not, but uh, he asks a series of questions that I think are really helpful for you and me to be able to diagnose what it is our heart really is set on. Not not what we think it should be, but what it really is set on. So I want to ask these questions to you, and and I've been trying to answer them as well, because you'll never betray what you love the most. And I think these questions help you determine what you love most. So what do you feel, this is his question again, what do you feel you can't live without? What has the ability to make or break your day? 
What is it that has the power to make you very sad? Or what can produce almost instant happiness? The loss of what would lead you to be a bit depressed? What do you tend to attach your identity to? What tends to control your wishes? What do, you ha- what do others have that causes you to envy? If you could get just one thing, what would it be? The absence of what tempts you to question God's goodness? What does your use of money tell you about what's important to you? What fills up your hopes and dreams? If there was a video of your last six weeks of life, what would it reveal of what has its hold on you? Is there a place where you're asking the creation to do what only the creator to do? Those are good questions, aren't they? Well, Judas is drawn to money and power. Paul Tripp elsewhere says, you'll attach your heart either to the creator or something in creation. And the quickest and most common, I think, God replacement is the love of money. Because money and God make the same promises. But friends, only one of them will keep those promises. So Judas is drawn to money and and power. We've asked these things before, but ask again. More diagnostic questions. Would you rather have $10 million or free access to God's word? I mean, what really is more precious to to us? Or to put it another way, if someone paid you a million dollars with the caveat being you couldn't read God's word or study God's word for the next year, would you say, I'll take it? Or $100,000, just don't share the gospel with anybody. Do you love money or God most? Jesus put it so clearly, no one can serve two masters. You'll love the one or hate the other or hate the one and love the other. No one can serve God and money. And what becomes clear is Judas is actually a servant of of money. And then uh, Jesus is betrayed by, next, a man applauded by those in positions of power. Keep going. I know these are helpful but hard things to think about. Whose approval do you long for? Or if somebody applauds you, means something to you. Now, here's what seems to happen in the case of Judas, is this encounter or this event at Simon the leper's house with the ointment, when Jesus rebukes him, lovingly rebukes him, seems to be the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. It's it's in referring back to that event, and just if you're tracking with me, Mark 14, 2 could immediately be followed up with Mark 14.10, and he didn't lose any of the flow of the narrative, right? So the chief priests, the scribes, were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. So if you were making a movie using this was your script, you'd have Judas on his way to the chief priests, and as he's on his way to the chief priests, a little thought bubble or a little flashback scene to what goes on at Simon the leper's house, and after that, then you come back to Judas in the moment, and he's knocking on the chief priest's uh, door. Why? Because the loving rebuke of Jesus is what put him over the edge. When Jesus revealed to him that there's something wrong in your heart. So, so again, I... Uh, I I just want to confess, we're not good at this in our generation. We're not. We, we are so proud and arrogant, even the Word of God, we don't want to correct us. We don't want loving correction to come from other believers. We're immediately, immediately skeptical and critical of anyone who would offer 
Now, if someone wants to applaud my struggles, we'll hear that all day long. But if someone wants to help me overcome my sinful struggles, then all of a sudden we're like, wait, 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 wait. That reveals the heart. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for rebuke and exhortation. And can we confess, man, we love the exhortation, but we have a hard time with the rebuke. And when Judas is rebuked, see, a loving rebuke will often reveal to you what your heart really is set on. And when Judas receives a rebuke, he gets fed up. But what Jesus had said to him was actually true. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. So if there's something in your heart, that extravagant, sacrificial, all-in devotion to Jesus leaves you raising your eyebrows saying, well, you might have just gone a little bit overboard. Well, that was what was going on in Judas's heart. But sometimes we so long for the applause of the world around us that we can't hear the loving rebuke of the king who died for us. It says, Judas Iscariot, verse 10, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. Verse 11, and when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. He's applauded, slapped on the back. Hey, you're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one we've been hoping for. You're the one we've been looking for. Friends, the unbelieving world around us loves decisions like the one Judas makes. And it will be quick to applaud. Hey, you get somebody who's well-known who forsakes faith, forsakes the faith of Jesus, they'll be on the nightly news and on, on television so fast you can't even breathe. Take a breath before it happens, right? Documentary, book deal, let's get it going. The applause of the unbelieving world is immediate so fast oh we'll do well to have some of the apostle paul in us i do not seek the approval of other people for if i did i could not be a servant of christ but if you love money and your heart set on money you will long for the approval of the seemingly powerful so what i should have done to make this theologically accurate is i should have written on the screen a man applauded by those in and then positions of power in quotation marks right Because who is ultimately in the position of power? It's not the chief priests and the scribes. Again, we ought to be really careful on titles. Because the problem with getting the title of chief priest is you actually begin to think that's who you are. Chief priest is Jesus. He's the high priest. He's the only faithful priest. He's the one who has a position of power. And this is why you can trust him. Do you see it right here in Mark 14? Any sinful person who is given a position of power will always leverage that position of power for their own gain. Jesus, who truly has power, leverages his position of power to sacrifice himself in order to bless others. There's nobody like him. And Judas walked out on him. There's nobody like Jesus who being in the very form of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Bible properly understood begins, of course, in Genesis 1, and not too far in is Adam and Eve seek to replace God as God. Human beings who seek to replace God And then at Calvary, God comes as a human being to replace sinful man. That's the gospel. 
that when we tried to replace God as God, his response was one of loving grace, that he came in the person of Jesus Christ to replace sinful man at the cross and bear our deserved wrath in our place. And Judas, so short-sighted, walked out for 30 pieces of silver. But think about what he's forfeited. And then we have to see this, that the betrayal of Jesus is by a man who came to deeply regret what he had done. I don't have a lot of time to talk about this point, but it's so important. So I'm going to try to say this succinctly, but clearly. In Matthew chapter 27, if you're in Mark, the book prior to the gospel of Mark in the New Testament is Matthew. So Matthew 27 verse 3 says that when Jesus, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what's that to us? See to it yourself. You see how quick that happened? The applause quickly turns into, we don't want anything to do with you. What we don't have? So, so, so then, throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple... He departed. We track him together. Judas now doesn't have Jesus, so to speak, or the silver. Completely empty. He departed. And he went and hanged himself. What I want you to know and see in another contrast is between Judas and Simon Peter. For Simon Peter also grievously sinned against the Lord. Not once, twice, three times saying, I don't even know who he is. I don't know, I'm not his follower. There is a difference between regret and repentance. And Peter and Judas demonstrate the difference between the two. To get a biblical understanding of this, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Judas had been lied to and deceived. But here's the horrible thing about your spiritual enemy. After he's lied and deceived you into doing something, he doesn't then stop lying and deceiving you, right? He'll lead you into a trap, and then once you're trapped, will lie to you and say there's no way out. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Godly grief produces a repentance... That leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So what's the difference between repentance and regret? Peter came to see that he had done a terrible thing in denying Jesus and that there was absolutely nothing he could ever do to make up for it. But he trusted that Jesus' death on the cross covered his sins, opening the way up, for forgiveness and repentance. Judas came to see that he did a terrible thing and that there was nothing he could do to ever make up for it. But in despair, he concluded that his sin had the final word. In other words, Judas came to understand he'd done a terrible thing. He uses the phrase, I have sinned. But you also need to come to the place where you can say, looking at Jesus on the cross, but he has saved. I have sinned. He has saved. 
It's a gospel, glorious, glorious gospel truth. The only one who can save you is the one that we have betrayed. So let's take our claim right here. Jesus is betrayed by, lastly, a man whose betrayal could not prevent Jesus from accomplishing what he purposed to do. Amen? He's betrayed by someone who could not prevent Jesus from accomplishing what he purposed to do. And we know that God works all things together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The all things that God works together includes terrible things like the betrayal of Judas. In the same way that the awful, sinful, heartless betrayal of Joseph by his brothers, throwing him and selling him into throwing him into the pit and then selling him into slavery, was used in time by God to provide for the very brothers who betrayed him. God sent forth his son. And even the terrible betrayal and the political scheming of Pilate and the religious games of the chief priests and Pharisees, God worked to bring about his purpose in Christ dying on the cross for our sins. So Mary, when she brings this valuable possession and breaks it open, and pours it over Jesus' head. Her worship was extravagant precisely because she understood that what Jesus was about to do in his death was an extravagant demonstration of his love for her. So our response to Jesus is exactly in line with our understanding of what he's done for us. Jesus would put it this way. Those who've been forgiven much, love much. And can I ask it to you this way? What was the last act of worship of Jesus in your life that could only be described as extravagant? That honestly, if some other people who don't abide in Jesus saw what you did, they'd think to themselves, that was a little bit overboard, right? A little too much. Why don't we just quiet down a little bit? So our worship of Jesus is in line with our understanding of what God's done for us in Jesus. So I want to give you a few real specific applications from what we've studied for our lives right now in 2021. So I've got four of them. So let me give you these four specific applications. We want to study the word and then we want to be able to say, here's what this means now for my, for my life. Know this, the way you finish as a follower of Jesus, is more important than the way you begin as a follower of Jesus. The way you finish as a follower of Jesus is way more important than the way that you begin as a follower of Jesus. Or to say it another way, the way you end informs how you begin, right? It's not the other way around. A true conversion to faith in Christ results in a maturing life, Not a perfect life, a maturing life. In the same way you can look at me and say, I've grown and matured since May the 8th 
way back in the 70s to, to right now, we ought to be able to say that we are growing in Christ-likeness and the conforming God's purpose for us. We should look more like Jesus now than we did 10 years ago. So the way we finish is more important than the way we began. Second, I think this is so helpful for us to know and understand. We want to disarm the deceiver a little bit. So let's make room in our church family for serious questions and honest doubts people have when it comes to their faith. I'm putting two things together. One, sometimes beneath the surface, people really wrestle with things. And two, we are given to the way things appear. We look to the outward appearance, and we can appreciate how difficult that creates this scenario. I'm really wrestling with things, big things, eternal things, salvation things. I've got major questions, but I'm afraid if I ask these questions in a church setting, people will think, what's wrong with him or her? Does that make sense? So here's what's repeated again and again and again. People are made to think the only place we can bring real valid questions is out there, not in here. And I will tell you with full confidence, they're willing to offer you some answers out there. But I believe with all my heart, the only place to really find answers is here. So we have to disarm the deceiver by creating an environment among our church family where a powerful weapon, the fear of what someone else will think if I ask this, is cast aside. Because what I see in Jesus, we've studied through the Gospel of Mark, is he never once responds harshly to those who come in humility asking sincere questions. The Pharisees do, but Jesus does not. Jesus would have patiently listened to any question Judas had in saying that, I want to say, if you have a question about the character, nature, goodness of God, how salvation works, that doesn't mean you're Judas. Does it make sense, right? But we need to have a place where I think what often happens is we put a squelch on questions saying there's no place for those here. What I'm trying to say is this is the very place where there's room for those questions. I've seen too many people drift from the church over the course of my lifetime, and part of that is they never felt like they could ask some things that were weighing heavily on their heart. So I want to say, if you've got question, by God's grace, we'll always seek to sit down, Bible open, listen without saying, there's no place for that here. No, there is a place for that here. Now, two more specific applications. Let's also make room in our lives to be humbly teachable. Again, the last straw for Judas came when he was lovingly corrected by Jesus. The false follower is not willing to endure correction, especially when it's done publicly. But a healthy church is going to do both. We're living in a time where we are told again and again and again, if I believe it, that makes it so. And that's not so. It's not so. Just because I believe it, you know what that really is doing? That's Genesis 3 stuff, friends. That's putting yourself in the place of God. I decide what's good 
and what's bad. Now, we need the Bible and we need each other if we're going to stay on the straight and narrow. Last application for today is that form and appearance are dangerous indicators of spiritual life. Form and appearance. So many people I've known and loved in my life looked like they had it all together, and behind the scenes, their life was totally falling apart. Sometimes we feel the pressure, right? Got to keep up the appearance. Form and appearance are dangerous indicators of the existence, number one, of spiritual life, and number two, the health of spiritual life. So, with that said, the best indicator of your faith in Jesus is what your relationship with him is like when no one else is around, right? The best indicator of your spiritual health is do you abide in Jesus when there's nobody else watching? Now, it's a misnomer to say when no one else sees because the Lord always sees. So another way to say it is what's true of your life as a follower of Jesus, are you abiding in him when only the Lord sees? And I take this from what Jesus taught us. When you pray, go into your closet and close the door and your father who sees in secret, he will reward you. When you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, but your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites do, but rather wash your face so your father who sees in secret will reward you. What is the reward given to the one who seeks in secret? Now, this isn't to say that you only seek in secret. This is to say the foundation of your seeking is done in secret. What's the reward? You know what the reward is? The best reward there is. Really knowing God for who he really is. You'll never betray what you love the most. And if you love him the most, it will be evident in secret. In that area of your life, the secret area, are you abiding in Jesus? Now, in conclusion, here's what's true. Judas wasn't, and Jesus knew it. Judas wasn't, and Jesus knew it. The basis of our repentance and faith is the one who knows us like no other, is the one who went to the cross in our place. God's demonstrated his love for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's why in just a moment we're going to stand and have a time of response, and we're going to sing about the wonderful cross. It's the wonderful cross that separates worldly sorrow from godly repentance. And so let's stand together, and we're going to pray together. I appreciate so much your uh, devotion to God's Word this morning. We have a time of response, and what we're going to ask the, do, uh, ask the Lord to do is by His Spirit, now that we've listened to the Word, is that the Holy Spirit would bring what's needed now for your life. Some of us need encouragement to persevere, to trust that he will work all things together for good. Some of us need a loving rebuke that in the unseen areas of our lives, we've drifted a thousand miles away from the Lord and we're beginning to fill up our life with 
invaluable things. But whether it's an encouragement or rebuke or both, I want you to know is Christ-like love behind them both. Father, I do pray now we have not just gathered for the sake of gathering together. We want to seek the Lord together. I thank you for your word. It is such a sober warning that here we have evidence of a, of a person, not for a couple of weeks, for years of his life, gave every appearance of being a devoted follower, but you knew who he really was. On that day, many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, did we not do many mighty works in your names? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And and Lord Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. So God, I pray in this moment of response, you'd help us to see clearly things of eternal significance and we'd respond in a way led of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
you be seated for a moment. We're going to watch a video about the upcoming Annie Armstrong. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about people who do some of the hardest, most important work on earth. They start churches in places where people tell them, we don't need church. They provide food and shelter for families who don't even have the basics of life. They share the gospel everywhere for everyone. They are North American missionaries. It's always been hard doing what they do, but it's not always been like this past year. When the world shut down, the easy thing for them would have been to wait, hold off, or to stop. But that didn't happen, and it never will. Because for your North American missionaries, the mission always moves forward. We're still sharing the gospel. We're still impacting lives. We're still here. We never stopped. Right now, your North American missionaries are adapting. They're innovating. They're coming up with new ways to take the gospel into places it's never been before. You can do that when you have tens of thousands of people like you who give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Ministry costs money, and so your giving enables us to continue to spread the good news of the gospel. You see, no matter what's happening around us, when the world says stop, God always says go. That's why we're seeing new churches planted. We're seeing needs met, and we're seeing believers baptized. It's what happens when God's people give, pray, and go. Thank you for praying for your missionaries because prayer is powerful. And thank you for giving to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. As you do that, you provide the fuel that moves the mission forward. There's so much work to be done. Now, more than ever, it's estimated that there are 275 million lost people in North America. And so, what happens next in this story is up to you. I want you to know that uh, the first Sunday for our Annie Armstrong Easter offering is going to be March the 14th. So I want you to go on and be thinking about that. Uh, a few weeks out so we can sacrificially uh, give to it. We'll talk more about Annie Armstrong in the next couple of Sundays, but go on and circle your uh, calendar to know on Sunday, March the 14th, we'll begin uh, the Annie Armstrong Easter offering with the offering here during the worship service. I'll give you a couple other quick announcements. Uh, on Sunday, March the 7th, Kevin Qualls is going to be here as a guest uh, speaker. Kevin serves as the president of Christian Adoption Services, and so he's going to come here and speak. Uh, I've invited him to come on the conviction that it'll be well worth, well worth our time, as I believe that uh, followers of Jesus should really lead the way when it comes to caring for children in general, and then uh, foster care and adoption specifically. And so he's going to come and share with us uh, about that. He'll be at both morning services on Sunday, March uh, the 7th. And then two other things briefly is I want you to know that this Wednesday at 6.30 will be our next church conference. Uh, and so we'll do things a little bit differently on Wednesday night where we'll, uh, all adults and youth will meet here. We'll spread out like we've been doing uh, for our time of church conference. So, uh, so you can get the financial report and all that. We always aim to be transparent and the whole church family knows uh, everything that's going on with regards to that. And then have a few other things that we'll uh, talk about at that church conference. By and large... Our plan, and we know what happens with plans, but our plan is to always have the monthly church conference the last Wednesday in the month. 
And then last thing, real brief, is uh, we're in the process uh, of uh, moving some things out of a storage building we've rented for a while and moving those things to the completed storage building at the back of our property. So that rented storage unit has been emptied, but not everything that was in that storage unit is going to make it for permanent storage in this place, if that makes sense. So if there's something in particular you're interested in getting or knowing if it's there or making a claim on or whatever the best way of saying that is, you can go to the new storage building and take a look and take inventory. And if we can do that over the next week or so, that would be really helpful as uh, we make uh, that uh, transition from the rented to the one in the back. Let's stand together and we're going to pray together before we go together. And in conclusion, all I want to say here at the end is if through his word, God is speaking to you. Do not push that aside. It matters. Father, let's, let's seek him together. Father, we pray now in Jesus' name. Oh, what we've heard today from your word. So needed and necessary. We believe all scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable. So what you want your word to profit among us, I pray it would be so. Oh, help us. Help us not be like Judas that when correction comes, we harden our hearts, but help us to be humble and receive your necessary correction for what it is, what our souls need most. I thank you for my church family. And when it comes to Annie Armstrong and all sorts of other uh, things leveraging our brief life for the advance of the gospel, may that be urgent to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.